Oh, it's good to be with you again. This is so fun. If you're the type that likes to follow along in an actual Bible, um, Ezekiel chapter 18. If not, we're going to have some things on the slides. It's an honor to be back with you here at Equippers. I love this church. I love the movement. I've, I've, I've had the, the privilege of, of speaking uh, throughout bunches of Equippers uh, throughout New Zealand and Europe. And, um, and, and Pastor Bruce, I just I honor you um, for what you've done around the world. And Pastor Helen, you guys have just done a fantastic thing, and I've, I've gotten to participate um, in some of that just by seeing it in action, and it's, it's fantastic. And Pastor Sam and Kathy, it's an honor to be back with you, and I, I just, I see, um, as good as it's been, I see that the best days are yet ahead of it, because um, God is at work in everything in every way, and, and He doesn't uh, stop till He's finished what He started, and when God initiates something, He's duty-bound to complete it, and I love that. I love that. I, I'm for you, and I'm with you, and I'm, I, I, any, any, in any little way that I can participate in the move of God uh, through Equippers, I am so, so happy to do that. And for all of you, I'm so glad uh, to be here with you tonight. I want to talk to you tonight about empowering your life by taking responsibility. You, you, will, you will never, ever be as successful as you could possibly be if you spend any time blaming somebody else for where you are in life. And so I want to I want to talk to you about that. I want to look at an ancient uh, story, but I, I'm going to need you um, to help me preach. I, I'm going to state something that should be obvious. I've caught a bit of a chest infection, a little bit of a, you know, my voice is, is, is almost gone. And so that's why I've asked for this mic, because um, if I have to cough, I can do that. But if it's strapped to my head, I'm going to be coughing in the mic. So here's what I'm going to do. I might have to do that. So I want you to do this. Here's the signal. When I do this, I want you to clap real loud, okay? All right, so let's, let's practice that together. Ready? Go. All right, see, that's, see, that's very good. Now, see, if we can do that, um, then I'll be at ease throughout the night because then if I need to do that, we can do that. So let's try that one more time. Ready? Go. See, that's very fun, very fun. All right, so Ezekiel chapter 18. Let me introduce some terminology for you because when, when you're reading the scriptures, the scriptures were written a long, long time ago, and so... What the original author intended to say to the original audience is very, very important to understand, to, to, to interpret it. And so um, there's a couple of words that Ezekiel uses interchangeably that meant something different in the ancient prophetic world than it would say maybe today. And those words are light, life, and increase. Light, life, and increase. So when the ancient world used that, it didn't mean heaven when you died. It's talking about, and it didn't mean literally light or literally living or, or literally like breathing. It was, they, they were metaphors about a way of living that led you to life, light, or increase. It was, a, it was a metaphor about a realm you could live in. If you choose to live God's ways, then your life heads to abundance and peace and, and prosperity. And, and, and they would use words like life light and increase and in the scriptures they're presented as choices choose life that you here's life or death choose life uh, obviously not literal life no one chooses when they live or when they die it's life death choose life or here's light here's dark choose to be in the light as he is in the light light and so these were choices that were presented the the, the obvious um, um other side was true as well death darkness decrease so there was life light and increase, or there was death, darkness, and decrease. When Ezekiel uses the word die or death 
or decreased. He doesn't necessarily mean someone's going to go to hell. It's not about the afterlife. For the ancient prophets in that time, it was a, a person's making a decision that is obviously outside of God's ways. And so it leads their life to death, darkness. It was basically a death spiral, a spiraling into disrepair. And the idea is, is that here's life, here's death. Choose life. Choose to live in God's ways. Choose to go this way. Don't let your life spiral into death. Or choose to be in the light as he is in the light. Don't choose darkness. Darkness leads your life to disrepair. And so he's going to use these words quite a bit. Now, he opens this passage with something that's quite confronting. So if you guys could bring that up. Man, that is an awesome screen. i got to tell you, that is really, really cool. This is Ezekiel 18. Here it comes. And the word of the Lord came to me saying this. Keep going. What do you people mean about quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Next. As surely as the Lord, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. What an odd way to say something. Somebody, ate, somebody else ate something sour, and now my teeth are set on edge for it. So a couple questions. One, what does this proverb mean? And two, why is God so ticked off about it? Why is God so determined? I don't want to ever hear this again. Never, ever, ever. My father ate sour grapes, so my teeth are set on edge. My mother ate sour grapes, so my teeth are set on edge. I don't want to hear that ever again. Now, to understand this, we have to understand a quick history of Israel. So, let me give you the history of Israel in 90 seconds, which means you're going to have to pay very close attention. You ready? Okay, here we go. A guy named Abraham had a kid named Isaac, who had a kid named Jacob, who had 12 children. Through a series of unfortunate events, those 12 kids ended up in Egypt because of famine. Then those 12 kids had babies, and then those babies had babies, and then those babies had babies, and then more babies had babies, and then the next generation had more babies, and then there was babies upon babies upon babies upon babies upon babies, until the population of these, this foreign family ended up outdoing the Egyptian population. So the Egyptian king, a guy named Pharaoh, got threatened by this and put him into slavery because that was the logical thing to do to hold them down. Through a series of fortunate events, God raises up a guy named Moses to get them out of slavery and into freedom. And when he gets them into freedom, he gives them their own land and their own nation. And he tells this nation, I want you to show the whole world what it would look like if I was in charge. And remember, I am a slave liberator. So I want you to maintain justice and righteousness to the poor and the afflicted because remember, I, the Lord your God, brought you out of Egypt. Remember, I want you to show the world what this is like. And in short, this worked out terribly. By the third king, um, they had so much prosperity that it was just a real problem. The book of Kings says that Solomon collected horses, chariots, and spears and sold them country to country at a profit. That's called arms dealing. The, the, the book of Kings says that, that Solomon forced, it says, this is the account of the slave labor that Solomon forced to build the temple to the Lord. So a guy who comes from a lineage of freed slaves is now forcing slaves to build the temple to honor the Lord who frees the slaves. And he failed to see the irony in that. 
this doesn't work out very well. And this group of people end up in Babylon in slavery again. And in Babylon in slavery, the slaves blame Solomon. They, blame, they say Solomon messed up, that's why we are in chains. As a matter of fact, they wiped Solomon's name out of history books for 400 years. They refused to even say his name, so they addressed him as David's son. They would say, because David's son failed, we are now where we are. It's David's son's fault. David's son failed, we are where we are. Which is why the prophets speaking to the slaves in Babylon, what do they say? Take heart, for God will bring a new son of David who will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. Right. So, think about this. In the Gospels, what do they call Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth sometimes. Jesus Christ, Jesus King, Jesus, Jesus. But the poor and the afflicted, what do the poor people call Jesus? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, are you the son of David that the prophets talked about? Are you the guy that's supposed to maintain justice and righteousness for the poor? Because newsflash, I'm poor. That means you're here for me. So these people in Babylon are now enslaved because of their father eating sour grapes. So what they did is to cope is they wrote songs, poems, plays. Why? Because suffering can't be explained with bullet points. Suffering's not an intellectual exercise. If I was to say, tell me what it felt like to lose a child, you can't explain that with three bullet points, but you might could write a song about it. You might could write a poem or a play. You might could explain it with a story. And so what they would do is they wrote songs, all, and I mean all, slave cultures in the world write songs to cope. Some of the greatest songs in American history came out of the African-American spirituals that were written during their time of slavery, looking forward to a time of freedom. That's what happened here. So they write all these songs, and they write all these sayings to help each other cope. And one of their sayings was, my parents ate sour grapes, so it set my teeth on edge. They blame, listen, you say, Shane, what's all this about? Listen, if you've tuned out, here we go, ready? <laughs> Nobody looks bored, but here we go. Here's what was happening. The current generation was blaming the previous generation for why they were the way they were. Well, that's not relevant at all. I'm a pastor. As a counselor. As people in ministry, we deal with this all the time. Sometimes in pastoring, you have to confront unacceptable behavior. It's not nice, but you have to. And you go, sir, the way you're acting is completely unacceptable. And do you know how many times we hear this? I know, but if you just knew where I was from, if you just knew what my daddy was like, you would understand that. Ma'am, you're critical, cantankerous, and horrible. Your behavior's unacceptable. We don't know how to tell you this, but your husband secretly prays for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. Please consider changing your behavior. And the girl says, 
I know, I know, but if you just understood my mother, my mother was critical, horrible, and cantankerous, so I'm critical and horrible and cantankerous. The father ate sour grapes, so the children's teeth are set on edge. My mom ate sour grapes, and it set my teeth on edge. And God says, I don't want to hear that ever again. That is so disempowering. It's just flippin' shocking. My father's an angry, abusive man, so I'm an angry, abusive man. My father was an alcoholic, so I'm an alcoholic. My, my father was bad with money, so I'll be bad with money. My mother was a yeller, so I'm going to yell to get my way. My parents ate sour grapes, so it set my teeth on edge. And here's the problem. I'm a trained counselor. If you sit with me for an hour and answer my questions honestly, I can tell you why you are the way you are. Here's the problem. It doesn't help. To know why you are the way you are still leaves you needing to make a decision to act right regardless of knowing why you are the way you are. Look. Any psychologist that says we need to explore your parents for a year before we can get to behavior modification is making money off of you. I can tell you why you are the way you are. It's not hard. The problem is you're 40. And at some point, you've got to stand on your own two feet and say, this is not working. It's not working. How long until we do that? Listen. The only way that your parents are the reason you are the way you are is if you're eight. If you're eight, blame them. You have no choice. But at some point, you got to stand on your own two feet and go forward. You say, Shane, you don't understand, man. You don't understand. My family had issues. Really? Let me ask you a question. Did your family have a man and a woman trying to live together? And there's going to be issues. Marriage is fragile and beautiful and dangerous and lovely and complicated. Marriage is so complicated, the Bible can't even agree on what to say about it. Solomon says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Paul says, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. <laughs> What's the Bible say about marriage? Depends on who you read. Solomon's like, marriage, let's do it. A lot. <laughs> Paul's like, oh, think two or three times before you do that. Why? It's complicated. Even, even if you marry well, like if you got two people who were like, you know, basically mentally healthy and love Jesus, right? <laughs> it's still complicated because of preference. Most things in marriage is not about right or wrong, it's about preference. And men and women prefer different things. Like women prefer sweet smelling things, perfume. Flowers. You hand a woman a bouquet of flowers, what does 100% of women do? Sniff it. 
You hand a man a bouquet of flowers, all he smells is $70. That's what that thing costs. <laughs> Women love sweet-smelling things. You go, to the, you go to a big enough mall, you will almost always find two women in a candle shop. Two women can sniff wax for an hour and a half and call that fun. You'll never see two men doing that. Never, never, never. You imagine walking through the mall and seeing two men sniffing candles? Hey, Billy, that's that new white lilac scent, man. That is something special. Woo-wee, that is something good. No way! No way! And the reason is, is men like stinky things. Women like sweet-smelling things. Men like stinky stuff. Nothing funnier to a bunch of men than when something stinky happens. It's hilarious. Women think that's disgusting. Men love it. We love stinky things. Even if you, even if you train a man to put his dirty clothes in the dirty clothes hamper, if you watch him, right, he won't do it if he, if he knows your wife, but if you, if you watch him and he doesn't know, when he takes his clothes off and drops it in the dirty clothes hamper, particularly his socks, just before he drops it in, he... It's like we prove we work. And I can tell you, if those socks don't, if, hey, if those socks don't stink bad enough, I think I can get one more wear out of them. That is not really Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And men are weird with stinky things. Like, we have a rule. Let me, you women don't understand this, but men have a rule. It's in our DNA. We can't help ourselves. If you play rugby, if you're in a rugby match or something, right, and you're bloody and sweaty and muddy and nasty and all jacked up, Anyway, you got to get to a meeting, so you shower. You put these bloody, nasty, sweaty, muddy clothes in a plastic bag and seal it up. And you throw it in the boot of your car. Three months later, you're looking for something in the boot of the car. You're like, oh, there's that bag. And you remember what's in it. Every single man in this room knows what has to happen. It's a rule. You have to. Every single man is going to open that bag and they're going to sniff it. It is 100%. They're going to open that bag and they're going to, whoa, that's right. And here's the thing. Here's the rule. Here's what women really don't understand. If any of our mates are around, any of our mates, if we have a stinky thing, they owe us a courtesy sniff of our stinky thing. You got it. They, they got to all try it. It's like, oh, oh, that's a good one. Oh, oh, oh. But here's the thing. Once they smell our stinky thing, then, I, then we owe them a courtesy sniff of their stinky thing. And it gets very, very complicated, which is why... If you're ever in Auckland in rush hour and you're caught in traffic at like a red light, and there's four guys in one car and three of them have the head out the window and the fourth one's in the back seat laughing, he just cashed in on his courtesy sniff. So what happens is, is men like stinky things and women like sweets, but even in language, a woman says, I have nothing to wear. The man goes to the closet, opens it and says, you have a closet full of nothing to wear. But women know what that means. When a woman says, I have nothing to wear, what she means is, I have nothing new. Let's go shopping. But when a man says, I have nothing to wear, what he means is, I have nothing clean. Please do laundry. It's two different things. Of course your family had issues. Everybody's family has issues. You say, you understand, Shane, my dad had issues. Really? Your dad had issues? Everybody's dad has issues. They're human beings. My dad has issues. My dad's a great man, and I want to be clear about that. He's a great man. It is uh, 1 o'clock in the morning where he lives, but I can tell you that at 4.30 this morning, he was praying for this meeting tonight. 4.30 in the morning, wherever he was, he prayed. I don't even need to know. I know because he prays at 4.30. 4.30 every day, he's up praying for me. Every day. 
And he keeps getting up earlier. When I was a kid, he got up at 6. In junior high, he was 5.30. When I was in high school, it was 5. I went to university, starting up at 4.30. Then he started at 4.15. I was talking to him the other day. He said, Sham, think about getting up at 4. I said, Dad, if you live 10 more years, you're going to have to eat breakfast the night before. My <laughs> Lord. Dad was up at 4.30 this morning praying for us. I can tell you, he's covered this in prayer from Charleston, South Carolina. He's an awesome dude. But he had issues. One of his issues is he liked to scare us. And I'm not talking about a mild fright either. I'm talking about freak people out, scary people. I, I've never been a morning person in my whole life. I've, I've always stayed up late and I could get things done. But in the morning, I found it hard to get up, you know. So my mom would come in in the morning and she'd shake me awake and sit me up. Now, I want to be clear, I'm like six. She'd shake me awake and sit me up, you know, as I sit up on the side of the bed. And when I sat up on the side of the bed, I'd, I'd have this bad habit of falling back to sleep. So my dad thought, I'm going to break him of this. And my dad's big idea of breaking me from falling back asleep was to hide under my bed. Now, I'm six. I think the boogeyman's underneath there anyway. Now, mom doesn't know he's underneath there. He's hiding underneath there like some special forces Jack Bauer or something. My mom comes in, shakes me awake, sits me up on the side of the bed. And just as I was about to fall back asleep, my dad reaches out and grabs my feet. <laughs> Your dad had issues. <laughs> that one moment took me five hours with Ray Andrews. I don't understand what to do. <laughs> My dad also liked to embarrass us. Loved it. Thought it was hilarious to embarrass us. There's one time dad was dropping me off for junior high Bible camp. You know, you go to Christian camp. And anyway, I, he's, we're pulling up for the teenage camp. I'm 13 years old. 114 13-year-olds going to camp. What could go wrong, you know? Dad pulls up two huge buses that were going to be full of junior hires. Dad pulls up, and I'm sitting next to him, and my dad says, Shane, I love you so much. I'm going to pray for you every day that God will touch your life. Every single day. Every single day I want God to touch your life. I said, thanks, Dad. I love you too. He pulls up. I said, Dad, see you later. He said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where's my kiss? I said, Dad, my friend, you know, I mean, honestly. And he said, he said, oh, I get it, I get it, just go ahead and go. So anyway, I got out, put my bags in the bus, got on the bus, two full buses. I mean, chalkers full. I'm sitting second to the last row. We're fixing to go. I look up, and to my horror, my father had decided to get on the bus. And this is summertime. He's wearing shorts. He pulled his shorts up to here, his socks up to here, and he got on the bus with a limp. So he gets on the bus. He grabs the microphone to the bus, and he says, excuse me, this bus isn't leaving until my Shaney Wayne comes up here and gives me a kiss. <laughs> the whole bus was like, kiss him, kiss him. Your dad had issues. Of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad had issues. The question is, is are we predetermined to act in a destructive way because of something our parents did? And God says, I don't want to hear that anymore. Blaming other people for where you are in life. That's not going to get you anywhere in life. The only way to get somewhere in life is to stand on your own two feet, take responsibility for where you are, and choose to live a better way. Now watch his observation. Watch what he says. Watch this. This is the next verse. This is verse 4. Watch, watch what he says. For everyone belongs to me. Everyone. 
In other words, all, any discussion about who belongs to God and who doesn't, what? No, 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 no. God is not for one group of people and not for another group of people. God is at work reaching out to every single person. God is not for some people winning and some people losing. God doesn't act like that. This is not the case. The parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. But the one who sins is the one that will die. In other words, God's not for somebody and not for somebody else. It's not like when somebody's life is going into disrepair that God was against them, but he's for that person. No, 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 no. God is for everybody. But the one who chooses to live outside of God's ways, that guy is going to go into death, darkness, and decrease every single time. And it's not because God's against him, and it's not because Satan's attacking him. It's because of our choices. It's our choices between our father our mother and satan it's almost like we don't have any responsibility it's like oh my dad oh my mom oh satan's attacking me oh please come on empower your life make better choices there's a better way to go about it satan's one person who's not omnipresent there's seven billion people in the world i don't think it's him come on and quite frankly, especially around money, we, the way we handle our money, Satan can take a vacation. Like if you're buying things you can't afford with money you don't have to impress people you don't like, you're going to be broke. And it's not Satan's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not, it's not your dad's fault. It's our responsibility. Here's what Ezekiel does. He makes this long argument. That was so new in that day. See, in Ezekiel's day, here's what they believed. They believed that God was for people and not for other people. And they believed if their father had sinned, that they automatically, that sin was going to be held against them, no matter what they did. And Ezekiel goes, no, 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 that's not a good way to think about it. And he gives this incredible articulate, he says, if I could summarize it, here's what he says. Let's say a righteous man has a son who turns out wicked who then has a son who turns out righteous. Does the righteous man pay for the sins of his wicked dad? Surely not. And does the wicked man inherit the righteousness of his dad? Surely not. Every generation stands on their own two feet before God and they make a choice. And if they choose light, they choose light. If they choose dark, they choose dark. But it's their choice. It is not predetermined. And then he, he, he makes that argument great. And then he summarizes it this way. This is verse 18. What he says. But his father will die for his own sin. He's making a case that, that the wicked man is dying for his own sin, but the righteous son will not inherit that death. It doesn't work that way. That the father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst his people. Keep going. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Remember, they were taught their whole life, the son shares the guilt of the father. Ezekiel's saying something far more refreshing and progressive and new and, and liberty-bringing. It's just brilliant. Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep my decrees, he will live. Keep going. The one who sins is the one that will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked man will be charged against him. But if a wicked person turns away from the sins they're committing and keeps my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will live and not die. I love that. In other words, no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you are one decision away from turning your life around and going back into life, light, and increase. 
You're never too far away. Ezekiel says, no, no, no. If you're as wicked as you could be, if you repent and turn around, there's always a realm of life, light, and increase over there. You don't have to stay in death, darkness, and decrease. No matter how far down that road you get, you are one decision away from turning your life around. Watch what he says. None of the offenses they've committed will be remembered him. Because of the righteous things he's done, they'll live. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? In other words, Ezekiel says, God is not a kind of God who watches someone's life train wreck and he can't wait to show, hey, hey guys, hey, hey, this road this guy's on, that thing goes off that cliff. I can't wait to watch this. No, no, no. If a guy's on a road that's going to go off a cliff, God is a God that's going, don't do that. Get off the road. Get off the road. A wise person sees danger on the road ahead and changes roads. Come on, change roads. Change roads. Come on, a fool keeps going and he's going to suffer. Uh, uh Come on, change roads. Change roads. Change roads. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. God is for everyone choosing life, light, and increase. Watch what happens. But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? No, none of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness, they are guilty. And because of the sins they've committed, they'll die. In other words, no matter how far down the road of life, light, and increase you get, you're one decision away from turning down, turning around and getting into, into, into life, light, and increase. No matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you're one decision away from turning your life around. But then he really challenges us. And he points out something that is obviously true. Life, light, and increase does not work like a savings account. It's not like you can act in light for 20 years, and if you do 20 years of good things, then you get 20 years of bad decisions before you get back to even. It doesn't work that way. Listen, whoever has the best marriage in the room, whoever that might be, I would say this, no matter who has the best marriage in the room, that marriage is one bad decision away from sort of getting very, very fragile. Whoever the most successful businessman in the room is, you're one not really well thought out decision away from that business starting to wobble. Light, life, and increase is not something that you make a decision one time and then you just stay there. Life, light, and increase is every day waking up and saying yes to the infinite possibilities that God has for our lives. Paul said it this way. He said, just as you received Christ, so continue to walk in him. So how did you receive Christ? All of us would have a different story, but essentially, we all received Christ because we responded to God. And Paul says, just as you receive, so walk. In other words, you receive Christ by responding to God. The key to life is to keep responding. Keep saying yes every single day. Keep saying yes. If you're on the road to death, darkness, and decrease, turn around. If you're on the road to life, light, and increase, keep going keep going now watch watch what he does watch this yet you say the way of the lord is not just hero israel is my way unjust is it not your ways that are unjust remember israel's ways was if your dad sinned there was th that sin just passed on he goes that doesn't sound fair this sounds a whole lot better watch what happens if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin they'll die because of the sin they've committed they'll die but if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they've committed and does what is just and right, they'll save their life. In other words, if you're going that way, turn around. If you're going that way, keep going. That is a simple, and that is just, that is fair, that is right. Watch, watch what he says. Because they consider all their offenses they've committed and turn away from them, that person will live and not die. Do I take, uh, 
yet the Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just? Are my ways unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? In other words, think about it. Think about who's saying something more fair here. Watch what, watch what happens. Therefore, Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways. Your choice. Not your daddy's choice. Not your mama's choice. Your choice. Do you know how empowering that would have been to a generation of people that, told, that were told they were enslaved because of their daddy? This is like, no, 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 no. You can stand on your own two feet before God and make a different choice. Repent. That just simply means turn around. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. In other words, get, get rid, quit, quit perpetuating patterns that are destructive. Next slide. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to read that slower because I really want you to get that. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent and live. Turn around and live. Rid yourself of your offenses and get a new heart and a new spirit. So you might think, Shane, okay, this was mildly entertaining and um, I get it. But what do I do with all this? couple of thoughts that I want you to take away from this, okay? Sermons are not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. If you say, I love that, I agreed with it, you sort of missed the point. If you say, I disagree with that, I, I hate it, well, you've also missed the point. Sermons are meant to be wrestled with. And so I want you to, to not be just a hearer, but a doer. So a couple of things I want you to take away from this. First, all of us are shaped by our history and heritage. You can't get away from that. You didn't choose your parents. It wasn't your fault. Whatever destructive thing they were doing, that's not on you. And listen, all of our default buttons are formed from our family of origin. If your family were yellers, default button. If your family handled conflict by passive-aggressive behavior, default button. If your family handled conflict by just raising cane until they got their way, default button. That's your default button. Some, some family systems honor purity. Some family systems, promiscuity is no big deal. That's your default button. All of us are shaped by the, your first three responses in strife. Default button. These things are formed by our heritage and our history. And you can't get away from that. And for the person who says, you know what? That was some hilarious stories about your dad. But your dad was a good man. My dad was a mongrel. How do I, what are you talking about? How do I apply this to me? Let me speak to you for a second, okay? The fifth command is to honor your father and your mother. And you might be thinking, how do I honor someone who was horrendous? Let me speak to that just for a second. First, you don't honor someone because they're honorable. You honor someone because you are. That's first. Second, and more importantly, the Hebrew word honor has almost nothing to do with what you do towards somebody and almost everything to do with what you do away from them. Let me explain what I mean. If you're a parent of a teenager and your daughter said, Dad, I honor you, that would bless your heart. But what would bless your heart more is to know that at 11 o'clock at night on Queen Street, she's acting in an honorable way when you're not around and what she's doing towards you. Okay. To honor your father and mother 
has less to do with what you say to them and more to do with the godliness you're going to perpetuate in the future generations. And here's why. Here's why. If you, this is what honoring your father and mother is in one sentence, or one statement. Honoring your father and mother is being honest about the habits that need to go on. My dad's prayer habit, my dad's work ethic, my dad's love for people, my dad's generosity, that needs to go on. My dad's propensity to scare six-year-olds needs to stop with him. <laughs> and so you go, we're going to embrace this and carry it on. But true honor is, we're going to embrace this and carry it on, but those other things, that is not okay. And we're going to stop that right now. And here's what happens. I get asked this a couple times a year. Shane, wow, do you come from a long line of preachers? Uh, no. My great-grandfather was an illiterate, moonshining, KKK member racist. Illiterate, couldn't read. Elite, made his money through illegal whiskey sales and was a white sheet wearing KKK racist. And you look at that and you go, Shane, how did, you, how did you and your brother end up where you are? Here's how. My mother and my father stood on their own two feet and said, you know what? We will not perpetuate that one more day. Our children will go to school. Our children will read books. Our children will learn about Jesus. Our children will live a surrendered life to God. Our children will learn worship in the presence of God. Our children will say no to racism because that's ridiculous. That is dishonoring. That is horrendous. And all it took, all it took was one generation standing on their own two feet and saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that was all it took to honor an entire generation all the way back. People now think my great-grandfather was a godly man. And what better way to honor him than to live godly myself and then people make assumptions that aren't nearly true. Say, my dad was a mongrel. I'm, listen to me. I am so sorry. I am. But the key to your life is to honor him. How do you honor him? You honor him by never perpetuating that kind of dysfunction and pain and horror and violation to anybody ever again. And by the time you have grandchildren, people will be asking, do you come from a long line of preachers? See, Ezekiel says it this way. Rid yourself of your offenses and then get a new heart and a new spirit. Please listen, listen to this. Because see, there's a way that this gets taught backwards. Here's the way it sounds. Hey, hey, you need to get up here to this altar and you need to get healed. And after you get healed, you'll start behaving better. There's some truth to that. And okay. But it's a bit disempowering. Ezekiel says it the exact opposite. Ezekiel says, oh, no, 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 no. Here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Start by faith behaving the right way, and God will give you a new heart and a new spirit. One way says, come get healed, you'll behave better. One, the other way says, no, no, no. By faith, start behaving better, and watch what God does to your heart. Totally different. 
here's the thing. Some things you just can't be healed from. Some violations are so horrible, you want to get healed from that? Some divorces are so devastating, what? Like healed? What, what? Some, some things that we go through from our family of origin, it's like, what, get healed from that? And that's the beauty of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's like, you know what? God is not interested in healing your heart. God is interested in giving you a brand spanking new one. Why would you walk around this life with a, with, with a patched up wounded heart when there's a brand new heart transplant waiting for you? So, my brothers and sisters of all May it never be said of any of us that my father ate sour grapes, so my teeth are set on edge. May this be the generation that stands on its own two feet before God and says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want us to quiet our, our week. I want us to, to, to quiet our mind and our moment. I want you to pray this prayer underneath your breath. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me the things in my family that must change? Holy Spirit, reveal to me the places in my family that I must change. And then give me the courage to act. If you're here and you're married, I would, I would urge you to have a coffee with your wife or husband and say, is there anything that we're rationalizing today that our children will regret tomorrow? Is there anything... Is there anything we're letting go because it's our normal, but it really isn't, it really isn't God? Is there anything we should repent from and stop? Because here's the thing. If you do, you'll be the hero of your whole family. And if you don't, your children are going to have to. Why not? Because when, when you have a moment like this, you can make that choice. But if you don't, one day you'll look back on a night like tonight and you'll think, I wish I would have done something. Holy Spirit, would you reveal it to us and then give us the courage to act. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Jesus at all. And tonight could be your night. I can tell you who I'm talking to. I'm talking to any person that God is sort of tugging at your heart right now. If God's not tugging at your heart, I'm not talking to you. I don't want to manipulate God. I want to cooperate with him. If God's, if God's tugging at your heart, I would ask you to respond right now. If you need a prayer to pray, you can say something like this. Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust your version of my life story instead of the one I've written on my own. I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to surrender my family and the way we do things. I want to change my family tree, starting with me. You can do that now. Lord, would you give us the bravery to change the things that aren't godly and thereby be the hero of our family tree. Would you look this way? I bless you all to know that you serve a God that loves you more than you love him. He, he believes in you more than you believe in him. He, he's entrusted you with some incredible gifts and talents and personalities and moments. I, I bless you to be people who are brave enough to change your family tree. I bless you to be people who are willing to say, you know what, that needs to stay, but that's got to go. I bless you to be people, if you're, on the if you're on the road to death, darkness, and decrease, you turn around. If you're on the road to life, light, and increase, you keep going. I bless you to be people whose teeth are never, ever set on edge because of something somebody else did. May you be set free from ever saying, my father ate sour grapes.
So my teeth are set on edge. May we choose life that we might live. Until I see you again next time, grace and peace, everybody. God bless.